Spencer Balpert and Timo Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except owing to scheduling conflicts, has occurred on a Tuesday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest in this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, Yankees outfielder Jacoby Ellsbury is currently in his age 32 season and did last year produce numbers almost across the board that were worse than his previously established levels. However, Dave Cameron argues Ellsbury is probably not the victim of age-related decline to the degree that one might suppose. What cognitive biases are at play when evaluating older players in general? This is a much more sick version of a question I asked Cameron in what follows. Also in what follows, the San Diego Padres have traded right-handed pitcher James Shields to the Chicago White Sox for a modest return and possess a few other players on their roster who might also net them something before the trade deadline. Regardless, the Padres are in dire straits, but how dire are those straits? I asked Cameron to compare the current iteration of the Padres and the organizational health to the Phillies teams of 2013 and 14, the weak Astros teams at the end of the Ed Wade years, and the current edition of the Milwaukee Brewers. How do the Padres' depths compared to the depths, the deep depths of those other clubs. Finally, starting from a joke by Hannibal Burris to the effect that the worst time to die is right after having bought in bulk a forced Dave Cameron to participate once again in our practical analytics series. What are the appropriate calculations to make, I ask him, when, for example, buying or not buying months' worth of deodorant? His answer is meandering, but it does include one startling, doleful revelation. It's my favorite place to go. Like, if I have free time, I go to Costco. That revelation and others like it in the conversation to follow. But first, a message from the sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. You know how life is consumed largely by work and hassle? SeatGeek is unable to remedy that in most cases. However, with regard to the purchase of tickets to concerts and sporting events, they might actually be of some assistance. What SeatGeek does is to pull tickets from multiple sites to aggregate them, as it were, into one central location so as to most easily find the least expensive tickets for the event of your choice. One valuable service they render is to place a grade on every ticket to represent its value, allowing the buyer to best exploit the inefficiencies in any given ticket-buying market. Finally, unlike StubHub, unlike other ticket-selling website StubHub, SeatGeek will quote you the same price from the beginning to the end of a transaction. No hidden fees, no mysterious charges. It's all up front. And for having endured the sponsor's message, listeners are entitled to a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code FANGRAPHS, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S, FANGRAPHS. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code FANGRAPHS today for your nearest possible convenience. With which utterance I've completed the sponsor's message and almost the entire introduction. What is it? It is FANGRAPHS Audio. Who does it feature managing editor of FANGRAPHS, Dave Cameron? When does it begin? Right now. Standing? Well, I'm leaning on my car. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> uh, practical analytic. Are you ready for your practical analytics? Sure. Okay. Here it is. I was recently uh, recently watched a a Netflix documentary slash special um, featuring 
American comedian, not world famous comedian, but relatively, uh, relatively famous comedian Hannibal Burris. Oh yeah, I've heard of that guy. Sure, yeah, he's been he appears in a number of sitcoms. He um, got famous for uh, outing. Uh, oh yes, Crosby. he got yeah. most famous for that. Yes, yeah. yeah. But he's been yeah. he's been around for a while, and there's recently a Netflix documentary featuring him at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Okay, which is okay. A, it's like a month long thing. He does like a show every day for a month, so like 28 consecutive shows, something like that. And <clears throat> at some point, he tells a joke, or I think you hear a couple versions of it. And he's talking about buying in bulk. <clears throat> and one of the things he says is that probably the worst time to die is right after you've bought in bulk because you've bought for, you know, you've bought a number of the same item. You spent quite a bit of money. Of course, if you're dead, maybe you don't care about that. But my point is that you understand what I'm saying. I think, like, that would actually be very courteous to your, uh, the, the, I don't know, the ones you leave behind because then they could have, like, a funeral party with all of your food. Well, it depends. Like they, it depends. they wouldn't have to go to Costco. They could be like, look at all this cheese dip we have. So he's talking about, so he's been maybe at like a Walgreens or something, and they have a sale on deodorant. So he buys a bunch of deodorant, and he goes up to the counter. The cashier says something to the effect of, someone must be very stinky. <laughs> and he says, no, this is a great deal on deodorant. I'm buying a bunch of it so I don't have to see you as often. Ah, okay, right. Yeah. Here's the thing. When... Deciding to buy in bulk, what are the various calculations that one must uh, complete in order to decide? I mean, for example, if you were to find uh, tortilla chips that you yeah. that you really enjoyed and they were half off, should you buy all of the tortilla chips were there if you know that you that you're going to eat these tortilla chips all the time? So unknowingly, you have asked the exact right person because my wife's actually convinced that uh, I should like just live at Costco. Okay, like, it's my it's my favorite place to go. Like if I have free time, I go to Costco. It's not <laughs> entirely true, but it's the reputation I've earned because I go to Costco so frequently. Yeah, and I do really like Costco. Like I I buy my clothes at Costco. I buy a lot of our food at Costco. I, I'm a big fan of Costco. Uh, so I actually do this calculation pretty regularly because Costco, as you know, sells. 75,000 pounds of mayonnaise at one time or something. And so, and also uh, funeral or like caskets as well. Is that right? Uh, not at, not at my local one. Okay. <laughs> they don't have, but maybe you could probably special order them. It's, it's possible. Uh, but I will say like, you know, some of the things that we've discovered, I was actually thinking this last week because we buy whole milk for our son, like, mm-hmm. uh, after he switched from, after the first year they're on breast milk or formula and then at one year old they switched to whole milk. So, we switched to whole milk, whatever, five, six months ago. Uh, significantly cheaper. I was very excited to get away from formula. Uh, but we buy the Costco whole milk, uh, which is, yeah, I don't know, a dollar cheaper per gallon than the regular store or something. So it's not a dramatic savings. But Costco, for packing reasons, makes their gallon milk shape different than every other grocery store in the world. It's not the traditional little handle and the, the round. It's mm-hmm. kind of a square, rectangular shape, shape, so they can pack it on pallets because, you know, that's how Costco moves everything. So the Costco milk is insanely difficult to pour. Like the pouring system, it was <laughs> it was invented by a two-year-old or something. I, like whoever invented the way to pour milk out of the Costco yeah. milk container – uh, should be like you know not a design specialist launched it? into a moat of dragons or something like this, this guy is, is not, not he's not successful in life uh, although he probably made a lot of money selling his design <laughs> to Costco so maybe he is but uh, so I probably spill I don't know at least ten to fifteen percent of the milk 
that we purchase <laughs> pouring these bottles for my kid. Now, wait a second. And is it difficult to pour into just like a regular adult it's glass? Di- it's difficult to pour, period, because it's like the bo- the hole is on the top instead of on the side of the container uh, like you would expect for something of this shape. And then you have to like tilt it. And the only way to pour correctly with the Costco milk jug is to pour like really fast. Like you have to aggressively pour and then be done. So you can't, there's like no conservative way to like kind of just go carefully. Like if you go carefully, it's going to go everywhere. Right. So, so and, and, and so accuracy is key here, but, but, but it's beyond the demands of, of a no- normal person. It sounds like. Yeah, I think that this could be an Olympic sport, pouring the Costco <laughs> milk. It should be like, uh, maybe in the extreme games, like that. It's like, yeah, we're going to have like snowmobile surfing and then also Costco milk pouring. Okay. Uh, so, right, so anyway, so, so the, the point is that I, I think I do not come out ahead buying the Costco milk because my savings goes on the counter. Okay. No, all right, but yes, but that does not answer the question. How many, how much, when, when Hannibal Burris is buying deodorant. Yeah. He looks at the price, and then he looks at the number of units he could buy, and he right. also has to look at the chance that he's going to use all of them. Correct. So what is the? So what if they were free, for example? Should he, in theory, take all of the deodorants? Uh, well, I think it, you also at, at that point, if it was free, you would you would hope that there was some market for this, and you could just become a reseller of Costco's chips, okay. and you'd be like, hey, or the deodorants or whatever, and you'd be like, sweet, I'm going to go make a dollar per bag or something, selling to people who don't have warehouse memberships. Uh, but I do think, like, so I've purchased deodorant at Costco before. It comes in a five-pack, and mm-hmm. it's, whatever, like, 12 bucks or something. So it's, you know, significantly cheaper than buying individual at some other store. And then my wife has, like, vetoed <laughs> the deodorant. She's like, that deodorant smells terrible. So then I have four, four-and-a-half deodorants. Like, what are you going to do with four-and-a-half deodorants? So that's the that's risk, yeah. So that's the risk yeah. of buying in bulk. Yeah, exactly. Is you're, you're taking on uh, a, a larger commitment. It's like a long-term contract, right? right? It's uh, signing a three-year deal with a relief pitcher where, you know, Hi, wait, maybe... Did you switch it. deodorants just because they had it at Costco? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, I, do li- I do like Costco quite a bit. <laughs> I can't... How could you switch deodorants? That's such an intimate thing. I, I don't know what you do with your deodorant. <laughs> I, know, I wouldn't just describe saying, my just say it's like the same one. I mean, I use, honestly, I use the same one my father did and his father did. <laughs> you have like a family heritage deodorant? Well, it's just, a, it's just like, I mean, scent is, is such it a like, primal. Is, part of your, is it like part of your sigil? All right. Well, listen, I don't know. What did you say? Sigil? Sigil. Yeah. Like a family crest. Oh, that's great. I'm going to, I'm going to look that up later. All you right. don't know the word sigil? You, you know what? This is turned into mockery. Let's get into, <laughs> let's let's talk about the Padres. <laughs> okay, like, I think they bought in bulk on Matt Kemp's contract, and they really wish they had, you know, gone to a dollar store. They did buy, they did buy in bulk. Well, to make yeah. this, so we, so we, in a couple of the practical analytics things, we've talked about household concerns, right? Yeah. I want you to tell me if, if the San Diego Padres right now were a house that you'd find on the market. Yeah, it'd be a foreclosure. <laughs> okay, is that? I mean, is that true? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, like, you would look at the Padres and be like, well, I guess technically it might be a short sale, right? So, like, a, for people not familiar with short sales, mm-hmm. it's when someone is underwater on their mortgage. They owe more than the house is worth, and they're trying to sell it before the bank takes it from them. So that's kind of the Padres roster is uh, they owe their players more than they are getting value out of them, and they're like, hey, how do we, you know, get out of some of this commitment, which is what they did with the James Shields trade, and what they'll try to do with Matt Kemp probably is – you know, save us from ourselves. We'll continue to pay something, some kind of cost going forward. Uh, but we'd like to dump the rest of this on you. Okay, let's start with the the Shields trade. The um, San Diego Padres 
I'll show you all the things I can remember about it. Okay. And then you make it, and then you make it good. <laughs> then you say something good. The, uh, San Diego Padres trade, James Shields, uh-huh. who has an, a certain amount of years and, and dollars remaining on his contract. And, uh, two and a half years and $56 million. Oh, wow. The, to the Chicago White Sox for right-hander Eric Johnson. Yeah. Who has bumped, uh, bounced between the, the majors and the minors. He is the definition of a replacement level arm. Okay, and also Fernando Tatis Jr. Yeah, who is what? He's only 17, I think, or something like that. He was that. Uh, part of the international signing class last summer. So yeah, he was a 16-year-old when he signed uh, last July, uh, and I think uh, was not considered one of the elite talents in that class. Okay, how much money did the Padres also send along? Thirty-one million dollars. Oh my! So so they had to they had to pay quite a bit. I mean, so what? They they think Johnson. Well, it's not what they, I was, what they think in general. Johnson, as you said, he's a replacement level arm, and that might actually is that good enough to uh, have some sort of tenure in the Padres rotation yeah, right now? It, it makes him their ace. <laughs> no, okay, where's Andrew Cashner? No, right no, right. They also have Drew Pomeran. So, uh, but yeah. Johnson is basically around to soak up the innings that they're losing from Shields. Okay, so so right, so, and so he's around. And then Tatis. Well, of course, uh, there are a number of possible different outcomes there. I assume. Uh, well, yeah, as a 17-year-old, you know, he could become uh, Babe Ruth, or he could become, you know, no one you've ever heard of again. Right. Okay. Except for the fact that. You've heard of his father, so at least the name would be familiar, I guess. Well, I think Fernando Tatis is not exactly a, a household name in most circles. Like, maybe hardcore baseball fans listening okay, to Big yeah. podcast will know who he is. No, but he I, was, I, I well, don't think Fernando Tatis gets, like, noticed walking down the street. No. Well, he was around uh, for the Cardinals. And the, what, the Cardinals, was it? The yeah, the, Card- the Cardinals and the Rangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did a yeah. decent career. He's, he's mostly known for hitting two grand slams in the same inning. Okay, so so that's so that's now for you is that is that about what you would have expected in terms of a deal for James Shields at this point? No, I think it was light in terms of what I, what I think you would have expected, just given the fact that there's not a lot of pitching available. Uh, and I think if you kind of look at what Shields was considered to be over the offseason, obviously there were a lot of rumors of like you know Boston was potentially interested or they're trying to get Boston to be interested. And I think at that point the question was. Of the remaining, I think at that point he had 63 million left on his deal. Coming into the season, he's obviously paid down part of it. Uh, how much of it would, would people, would the Padres have to pick up in order to move him? And I think at that point I estimated that they have to move 15 or 20 million, something like that, uh, in order to get like a decent prospect of back in return and not just clear the, clear the salary off their books. They ended up moving 30 million and getting a lesser prospect than I thought. Obviously, part of that is Shields hasn't pitched very well this year, and like three days before the trade, he gave up ten runs to Seattle, and I think one of the concerns was how well his stuff would do in the American League. So he promptly went to an American League ballpark and didn't make it out of the third inning, uh, and then his owner bashed him and, and said he should be embarrassed, uh, and that probably accelerated the desire to get him out of town. So mm-hmm. I think uh, his value was diminished, uh, especially recently, but I was surprised that you know, the fact that Detroit or, you know, some other, you know, even Kansas City who's he's had success with and, and you know, is kind of likes pitch-to-contact guys who, who command the strike zone wouldn't take a shot on him and say, hey, look, we need a starting pitcher. This guy's basically free. Um, but, you know, kudos to, kudos to Rick Hahn for making, like, the seventh trade of this where he's buying very low on a guy and getting a guy for almost nothing. And it works out well for Shields, too, I think, right? Because uh, now, of course, it remains to be seen. How he handles moving to a ballpark, 
Yeah. In U.S. Cellular, which I, th- I think is, is pretty hitter friendly, home run friendly. Yeah, correct. And uh, but he gets to go play for a team that's at least in contention. Yeah, and I think the ballpark state can be overstated. I think like uh, we basically had the same conversation a couple of years ago when the Brewers traded Marco Estrada to the Blue Jays, and everybody freaked out because Marco Estrada gives up a lot of home runs. He's an extreme fly ball pitcher, at least he was until this year. And uh, going to Toronto, which is one of the most homer-friendly ballparks in, in the country, everyone was like, well, this is the end of Marco Estrada, and, and he's had the best years of his career there. I think w- the the impact of a, a particular stadium's home run rate on a particular pitcher's skill set is often really overestimated. Like James Shields, generally when he misses, he's missing with like, you know, an 89-mile-an-hour fastball down the middle. It's going to leave a lot of ballparks. It's not, it's not like he's giving up wall scrapers that are – uh, you know, gonna get out in Chicago that didn't get out in San Diego. He's giving up moonshots. And so I think it's, uh, it's probably going to be less of a factor than people might expect. Right. The move and to it, the American it, League is gonna be a big deal. Right. And well, and the other point though is too, right? Um, it seems as though this has become more clear, at least more clear to me, uh, since, uh, since batted ball data has become widely available, is you find that pitchers who are fly ball pitchers also can be, if they're a certain type of pitcher, also can be the pitchers who, Induce the most uh, most frequently infield fly balls, which is the right. strikeout, basically. Yeah, right. I mean, a lot of times you have uh, extreme fly ball pitchers post lower home run rates than something like XFIP would expect because they also pitch in the part of the zone uh, that you know turns in, instead of home runs, those balls go for infield flies. So mm-hmm. uh, I think we do know that fly ball pitchers uh, probably aren't as hurt by extreme home run environment parks as the public thinks. Okay. Now, uh, after Shields, uh, who's, you, I think you, you you discussed Pomeranz as a possible trade candidate. Yeah, which, uh, basically Drew Pomeranz and Will Myers are their only two assets of value left. I mean, if they'll get something for Fernando Rodney and, like, John Jay will bring back some C-minus prospect. But, I mean, like, if they want to, like, get a real return like they did for the Craig Kimball trade mm-hmm. uh, over the winter, uh, you're basically looking at Pomeranz and Myers as, like, your two guys left to sell. And you you uh, suggest that they're that they're, that they're, at some level they're they're in roughly the same place that the Phillies were last year, except for they don't have a Cole Hamels to trade, so okay. uh, they're in a worse position. So in terms of in terms of if you were to say like over the last two three years, if you look at the essentially the lowest point for yeah. organizations. What you know? What would be? I'm not asking you to rank them specifically, but what, sure. who would you throw into into that pile? So I think the Phillies of like a year ago, before they let Ruben Amaro go and kind of pivoted and went went a different direction, were probably near the bottom. But they also have a higher floor than most people because they can run a 150 million dollar payroll as soon as they're good again, uh, and they can ramp up pretty quickly. They can spend a lot internationally. So I think um, the Phillies is like a major league team. Were were pretty close to the bottom, and uh, they didn't have a lot of assets left after they traded Hamels. But at the same time, they have a quicker return to respectability because of their financial position. I think the Padres and maybe like the Astros of the, you know, when they were losing 110 games a year. Um, like the end might, of the might, Ed Wade era? Is that, yeah. yeah, right. Kind of the, the, right when they switched over to Jeff Lunau, that was a pretty rough uh, time to be, a, be an Astros fan. Maybe the Twins of even a couple of years ago uh, when they were kind of at the end of their run and didn't have a lot of talent left in the farm system and, um, you know, had a couple pretty bad contracts on the books. and um, But I think the, the Padres right now, when you look at their financial position, their competition in the NL West, uh, their farm system, their current lack of talent on the big league level, 
this is about as rough a position as you could say in terms of expected future wins as any team has been, I don't know, in the last 10 years probably. It's just, it's barring them drafting like Mike Trout 2.0 at some point in the next couple of years, which could happen. I mean, they could just, you know, hit a home run in the draft and, and get five or six really great players and, and turn this around quickly. But in what, you know, it's going to take something like that. Or the Padres aren't going to be good again for five plus years. So you're saying it, it, it obviously they're, they're, I mean, anything, almost literally anything can happen. It's unlikely that they would turn it around very quickly. Yeah, I mean, That's it will true. take, a, it's going to take a lot of, uh, you know, Drew Pomeranz type trades where they get a, you know, hey, look, we found a, an above average major league starting pitcher for nothing. Like that's, you're going to have to make a whole bunch of those trades. And I think when we look at the teams that have bottomed out, and really committed to rebuilding through the draft and, and signing international guys, which is what kind of the Padres said their goal is when they signed A.J. Preller and brought him to be their general manager as his experience was in the international market, and they wanted to be much larger players on that field. That's like about the longest game you can play in baseball. You're signing 16-year-old kids with a success rate of like 10 or 12% or something. Uh, so you're saying, you know, it's going to take me three or four international signing classes to get – you know, a handful of decent prospects, and then I have to get them to the big leagues. I mean, you're talking about a seven, eight-year plan at that point. So um, I think for the Padres, if, if they are realistic and they can sit down and say, look, we're not, we're not going to speak out of emotion, but we're going to do like a realistic self-evaluation of where we are, they are probably in a position where they need to lose 100 to 110 games for the next three years. And then they could really load up on the draft. They'll get accused of tanking. Uh, but, you know, they'll get some high picks. They'll get a, a large pool allocation to suspend internationally. Uh, they'll be able to take some shots on guys like Pomeranz. And so, you know, instead of playing Matt Kemp and John Jay and all these, like, old declining guys who have no long-term value, they could take a shot and try to find the next Ben Zobrist. That's how they're going to have to get back and kind of do what the Cubs did, do what the Astros did. Um, but if they continue to try and, like, hang around and be, like, respectable and win 80 games and, and build their farm system back while they're doing it, they're not going to win for a long, long time. You know, though, you mentioned the Cubs, the Astros. Those are those are pretty progressive front offices that yep. also, in addition to being able to, you know, find high-end talent or trade for high-end talent pr- prospects, they've also they've also found. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Tommy Lastella has provided right. meaningful plate appearances yeah. for uh, for the Cubs this year. Uh, and in Houston, you know, there was a lot of. I mean, they used a lot of methods to get to where they were, but they certainly found guys who were kind of um, who had put up impressive stat lines in the minor leagues, even if they didn't necessarily possess tools. You know, yeah. and some of them didn't work out. L.J. Hose did not work out. Right, but then they found a Jose Altuve. Right, the, right, and they they sort of gave him the benefit of the yeah. doubt. Right, <clears throat> and that's also what's happening. It would seem in uh, in in Milwaukee right now, right? Yep. I mean, right. in fact, you of course you know that. Um, I am a particularly big fan of Junior Guerra, right? Um, who's put up some very strong starts, and they also, you know, they went out and they got guys like Garen Chikini and yeah. Colin Walsh, and you right. know, uh, Chikini, Ramon course, Flores, and yeah, yeah, right. And so, of course, they're not all going to hit, but the right. the risk was very low. Yeah, and they're so just hoping to basically find like one out of a dozen. Right? Yeah, right. You just throw a whole bunch of spaghetti at the wall, and you pick up the one noodle that sticks. Right, but from what you're telling me, and honestly, I, honestly, I don't really have intimate knowledge of it, but but AJ Preller and his front office do not seem necessarily inclined in that direction. Maybe with the exception of the the Drew Pomeranz acquisition. Yeah, I mean, it's not to say they couldn't do that. I mean, I think we've seen, you know, teams pivot before executives pivot. Uh, it's not to say that Preller can't do that. I mean, he, I think he's capable of looking for diamonds in the rough. Uh, to this point, that has not been how the Padres have managed themselves, and that's not how they've allocated their resources. Um, if, if, if Some of that could be ownership, and ownership's decision to 
you know, try and go for it the last couple of years. I think, I think what we know is, or at least what, what I've heard within baseball, it seems to be fairly well accepted as fact is the Padres ownership, when they were interviewing GM candidates, basically said, we're not interested in a rebuild. If you tell us you're going to come in here and rebuild, you're not going to get this job. So <laughs> the plan, the, the plan that Preller, uh, put forth was kind of the one that ownership wanted to hear, not necessarily the one that was the best plan for the organization. So now we don't necessarily know what Preller would have done if he wasn't given that mandate. Perhaps he'll shift at this point and say, okay, I played it your way for a year and a half. It was a total disaster. Now you have to trust me and we're going to go my way for five years. Does he have that leeway? Does he have the buy-in from ownership? I don't know. Uh, and I think Preller's uh, tenure in Texas wasn't necessarily about finding diamonds in the rough. It was about scouting you know, international kids and, and projecting uh, trying to find high-end stars from teenagers. So is he going to be the kind of guy who's going to, you know, grab a whole bunch of kind of interesting fringy quad A guys and, and tries to find, the, the, you know, the next Jose Altuve or Ben Zobrist? I don't know. I mean, that's something the Padres should do. I don't know if they will. Do you, do you have any examples of, of instances in which ownership has involved itself in either directly in a player acquisition um, or more toward the point, what you're saying with regards to the Padres and their GM search, where they've inserted themselves into that and it's it's worked out well, it worked out better than it would have otherwise. Uh, I mean, I think if you look at kind of the Angels uh, uh, meddling with Artie Moreno, uh, you know, I think right now he's getting a lot of crap for like the Albert Pujols signing and uh, the C.J. Wilson signing didn't work out very well. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure he was the one who pushed for Vladimir Guerrero when he was a free agent, and Guerrero ended up being one of the best free agent signings, you know, probably of the last 20 years. Um, so I think there are examples of, of guys like Moreno who get involved and kind of say, hey, I want this guy, or I want us to win, and and it works. I mean, you could also maybe even look at, like, uh, with the Royals a couple of years ago, where they pushed in aggressively at a point where, you know, people like me thought that it was not a good idea to go after James Shields and to give up Will Myers and... Uh, you know, the public was very criti- critical, especially the Fangraphs public, was very critical of that decision. And two years later, the Royals won the World Series. So um, I think there are, there are instances where managers and owners and, and GMs have bucked the trend and said, hey, look, you know, we're going to kind of go against what what the public thinks our window to win is, and, it, and it's worked out. Um, but I think in the Padres' case, they needed a lot of things to go right, and instead basically everything they did went the wrong way. Hmm. Yeah. It, uh, well, yeah, that happens. All right. I don't know. It's it, it's just it's not it's not going well for the Padres. It's it's not. And I think the the trick is like in that division, even if things had gone well, it's really hard to see how they were going to get past the Dodgers and Giants, and then the Diamondbacks decided to push in too. And so you're really like you're you're at best the fourth best team in that division, and you know it's questionable. They're probably not better than the Rockies. I mean, they're certainly not better than the Rockies now. They probably weren't better than the Rockies last year either. So you're either the fourth or fifth best team in a five-team division, and you really think you have a good shot, especially when one of the teams in your division is spending $250 million. <laughs> that is uh, that is quite the hill to decide to climb. You know, on the plus side, um, a number of respondents were are very enthusiastic and optimistic about Jesse Agler, who was who one of the radio broadcasters. He's a younger person. So, oh, Well, that's something. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad the Padres' best asset is their radio guy. And uh, people were very excited about Aaron Goldsmith, too. Who, yes, that's true. He's, uh, but he gets to actually broadcast some real talent. That's true, yeah. Well, the, yeah. the Mariners are doing it. Where, where are the Mariners right now in terms of standings? Second place. I think they're four games back. Yeah, okay. They got off to a strong start, and now the pitching is falling apart. 
Yeah. Uh, where's Felix Hernandez these days? He's on the disabled list, but not for the reason that people expected, because I mean, he's throwing 89 miles an hour, so I think everyone kind of like, oh, Felix probably hurt, and we've written articles to this extent of like, it seems pretty likely that there's some kind of injury here, and then he goes on the disabled list with like a calf strain. Not, not necessarily the injury we were expecting. Do you, is it, uh, I, I know that you probably divorced your, uh, divorced yourself a little bit from the Mariners organization. Is it a little bit easier to kind of uh, look at them now? Uh, well, I think, so I think I wrote about this last year, uh, where I would say my fandom is basically dormant at this right. point. It's, yeah. it's mostly gone away. Uh, where I don't actually even watch that many Mariner games anymore. Like, I, I used to stay up and watch almost all of the 10 o'clock starts, and now that's a pretty rare, rare occurrence. You also uh, have a small child. Right. That's one of the reasons. <laughs> I have other things in my life to occupy my time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in terms of like, you know, if they go on a losing streak, it, it doesn't affect me emotionally. At like, all. If and I, when you do, Move to the West Coast, Dave yeah. Cameron. Not, not if we are moving. You're moving, and when you return yeah. to the West Coast, what what time are you going to be getting up Eastern time? Uh, probably uh, in the same range. So my hope is to keep basically the same schedule I have now, but just <laughs> you know on West Coast hours. So right now I generally get up around nine or nine thirty in the morning after staying up till two or something, <laughs> and uh, and so there I'll get up at six or six thirty. It'll be basically the same amount of events happening i'll be up in the same window of time worldwide it'll just be you know six or six thirty or so nine or nine thirty did you uh, do you do well at six thirty in the morning not historically but i i would hope that my body is just trained enough to say uh hey these are the hours i'm awake that you know <laughs> it doesn't necessarily care that the sun is out <laughs> right okay uh let's talk of, let's talk about jacoby ellsbury for a second and it, uh how old how old is that guy 32 32 okay uh, I'm interested in Jacoby Ellsbury, and of course you wrote about him today. I did. Um, not well, yeah, yesterday, because people are going to listen to this tomorrow. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, they wrote, um, you wrote about him, and you, you suggest, you use this fact that, uh, reports about his, um, demise, perhaps age-related demise, injury-related demise, or perhaps overstated is what you'd say? Yeah, I, I stole a paraphrase from Mark Twain. What did he say? The, the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, yeah, that's good. Uh, I remember on his sigil. Wait, is it? No. No, you're lying. I, uh, but I'm yeah. going to look that up. I'm going to look up yeah. that word, though. Okay. I'm going to have some fun with that. But the, uh, I, I think it, I don't know if it was one of the first articles I remember from Fangraphs. It was early on, though. It was at a point when Lance Berkman, I think, was on the Yankees. Okay. Or maybe he was having some troubles with the, towards the end of his Astros career. He might have moved on already to the Cardinals. Anyway, the point is that he had had he had fallen on rough times in terms of yeah. production, and there was a generally a great deal of pessimism regarding Lance Berkman. Um, not merely, not not exclusively because of the of the poor performance, but also due to his age, and people yeah. assumed merely that he had fallen off of a cliff. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's an interesting sort of thing. I, I don't know what do you call these um, biases or fallacies, yeah. fa- fallacies that can occur. Yeah, it's probably more of a cognitive bias. Yeah. A cognitive bias. That's yeah. exactly right. A cognitive yeah. bias that can occur, or they, um, where where we know that we know that there are very few, for example, productive forty-year-olds in the game. Right. Yep. And so we say, well, it's going to happen sometime that a player is not really a major leaguer anymore. Right. And when we see that he is. Uh, well, of course, Ellsbury's only 32, but 34, 35. Um, and, and age-related decline seems to have started earlier uh, yep. in the last few years. So so maybe the, maybe 32 now is more like 34 was five, ten years ago. Yeah. 
um, <clears throat> we're immediately, uh, it's easy to write off that, that player immediately. Um, and, but, so it takes a care, some careful consideration really to evaluate an aging player, a player who's past his peak. What, I, I mean, I guess, what do you have to say about that and also how does it apply to Ellsbury specifically? I mean, I think we know one of the biggest problems humans have in terms of analysis is that they're looking for patterns where patterns aren't always uh, existing. So, mm-hmm. like, we're really good at finding patterns and randomness and saying, oh, look at this, uh, you know, this guy hits really well every April uh, for five years in a row. Clearly, he's just an April hitter, and, you know, it's, it's just really, <laughs> it's noise, basically. And we just looked through the data until we found something that was, like, interesting and then we, we make a story out of it. Uh, so I think humans are just, in general, uh, too comfortable with fitting um, data into preconceived ideas. And mm-hmm. so anytime we have an older player who has a bad month, it's very easy to do what people did to Ellsbury in April, be like, this guy's done. Or if a good player, uh, a young, good young player, like, say, Jackie Bradley Jr., not saying that he's not going to be a good player, but he had a, you know, a 30-game hitting streak, 29-game hitting streak, uh, hitting for power, and everyone's like, Jackie Bradley Jr. is amazing now, ignoring the fact that, historically, Jackie Bradley Jr. has not been amazing. So then uh, that gets turned into a breakout, and we, we really overreact to recent performance for very young and very old players. Or, in Ellsbury's case, not that old players, but guys who... Uh, maybe are on teams that have a lot of old players. And I think a lot of Yankee fans have seen Mark Teixeira and Brian McCann and Alex Rodriguez and CeCe Sabathia and all these high-priced, expensive players not performing that well. And it's very easy to just be like, well, here's another 30-year-old who's, you know, now $20 million total waste of talent, when in reality, Ellsbury is probably still an above-average major league player. What is, uh, what's been going on with Ellsbury? He's had a strange career in general because he had a 32-home run season. Uh, but of course, he you know he's been primarily uh, employed as a major leaguer due to his what his foot speed and uh, his defense, yeah, and defense and reasonable hitting ability, yeah, but not superior. All right. Uh, can you remind us how how speed players age? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Speed peaks very early, so players don't generally get much faster than 23, 24, and it's it declines from there. So you, it's very easy for people to look at it and say, oh. This guy's a speed-based player, therefore he's going to be out of baseball when he's 30 to 31. Except for there's a there's a little bit of a hitch, is the guys who are really good athletes and keep their body in good shape and are generally in good physical condition are also the guys who happen to be fast. Those things go together. It's not necessarily a cause, uh, to, but you generally don't see you know guys with a BMI of 35 who are in really good athletic shape and, and keep their body in, in tip-top condition. So a guy like Ellsbury or, you know, uh, Carl Crawford, who was designated for assignment over the weekend, these guys have the skills that peak early, but they also generally have the kinds of bodies that uh, won't break down as easily as, a you know, a Ryan Howard or a Prince Fielder or some of these guys. So once they start having knee problems and leg problems, you can kind of see that, like, Carl Crawford's career, career basically got derailed because he got injured so many times, and his skills really were sapped. And so you can have... Your skills get evaporated if you have lower half problems. But if you don't have lower half problems, you can end up like a Kenny Lofton or an Ichiro or one of these guys who could basically play till you're 42 or 43 because they stayed in really good shape. They didn't get overweight. They didn't put too much pressure on their knees. And they were able to age really well. So some of these smaller, faster speed and defense guys end up aging some of the best in, in, in baseballs. Uh, and then some of them, you know, once, once their knees start to go, then they're basically done. So it's a little bit of a, a mixed bag and that you could say, 
speed guys do decline earlier because these skills peak in their early 20s. But at the same time, good athletes age better than bad athletes, and, and usually the fast guys are good athletes. How does it apply to Michael Bourne, who is currently taking plate appearances for the Arizona Diamondbacks? Yeah, I mean, I think that's another guy who you'd look at and say, this is a guy who was expected to peak early and, and did. I think, you know, he was uh, uh, really good in his 20s and has been basically useless in his 30s. Why? I mean, Bourne certainly has struggled with injuries. I think his were shoulder-related, though, not necessarily leg-related. Um, and I don't know that you can necessarily predict, you know, when a guy's shoulder is going to break out or, you know, fall apart on him. So I think with a guy like Bourne, you might just look at it and say, look, this is a guy who, you know, his body type didn't really have anything to do with injuries, and his injuries caused the decline. Okay. So back to Ellsbury, though. What is it, what's, his, uh, what's his contract status at the moment? So he's got four years left after this season – so four and a half years, I think ninety million in future commitments plus the remaining twenty. Well, it makes twenty-two this year, so he's probably got like fourteen, fifteen left on this year. So, what, like four and a half and a hundred and five million or so? Okay, all right, and so that's a lot of money. Yes, yeah, a lot of money. What, what's going? To, I mean, generally the Yankees right now. I mean, they're uh, are they below five hundred? Yeah, they're a few games below five hundred. Yeah. Is this the sort of inevitable conclusion of a team that? Invested in older players, and then I, suppose, I don't think they did much during this most recent offseason, did they? Yeah, they didn't sign any free agents this winter. So it is to some degree. I mean, when you have uh, whatever eighty million dollars tied up in uh, Teixeira and Sabathia and A Rod and Ellsbury and you know uh, Brian McCann and Chase Headley, I mean, they have a lot of money tied up in post thirty guys who aren't playing that well. Although Sabathia is you know uh, kind of reinventing himself and giving them good innings. I think you could say, look, it's really tough to win when you're wasting, you know, $100 million of your payroll or, you know, spending it inefficiently anyway. But the Yankees have $180 million payroll, $200 million payroll, something like that. So they still have enough left over to still put a good team out there. I think the real problem with the Yankees is that their starting pitchers, especially their young starting pitchers, Michael Pineda and Luis Severino, have been terrible this year. So if those guys had, you know, performed even reasonably close to expectations, and then you have, a, like, a resurgent Sabathia and Masahiro Tanaka's been fine, all of a sudden, the starting rotation looks good. The, start, the bullpen is great. Uh, you know, at least once Rolls Chapman came back, so you have three dominant relievers at the end. The offense has been okay. I mean, that's like a, you know, not a terrible way to win games. But when the starting rotation falls apart, uh, it exposes a lot of the other weaknesses on the roster. What's that? Severino has had, hasn't he had among the, the worst, uh, what'd you say? What he had the, one of the largest gaps between his actual run prevention numbers and his fielding independent numbers? Yeah, that's actually, I think Pineda's like not that far behind him either. And, uh, this is actually a, a thing where I think Nathan Eovaldi, who, uh, the Yankees have, has also historically been a, a big underperformer in terms of, uh, his peripherals and his ERA. The Yankees have certainly targeted these kinds of pitchers. Like, I think, uh, when, uh, Brandon McCarthy was basically given away by the Diamondbacks, they picked him up and McCarthy was great for the, for the Yankees in the second half of the season. Um, this is definitely something where it seems like an organizational decision to target guys with really good peripherals and say we don't really care about ERA so much. But when you do that, occasionally you end up with a guy who has a skill or a lack of skill of, of stranding runners or pitching well with uh, men on base or uh, whatever it is that allows him to or doesn't allow him to uh, kind of live up to his peripherals. And, and I think the Yankees probably have found uh, at least one pitcher like that in Eovaldi and, and potentially more with uh, Severino and Pineda, depending on how their careers turn out. Yeah, so this is – I actually intended to ask you that. Anyway, this will be the last thing um, I do ask you. Was uh, regarding a stat like XFIP, right, or let's no. say XFIP specifically, which is dependent on certain uh, statistical indicators, strikeouts, yeah. walks, 
Ground balls, yeah. Ground balls or you yeah. know, percentage of fly balls, however it's rendered. But that's the basic idea. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm curious now, um, especially now, now that uh, batted ball data is pretty widely available, I'm curiously ha- how anything has changed for you as to how you sort of mentally navigate a, a XFIP. And when you see a player's XFIP and you see this sort of strange relationship maybe uh, with his actual run prevention numbers, whether he is, a, is preventing runs at a much greater or much lesser rate than his, his uh, fielding independent numbers would suggest, I'm wondering how you navigate that now compared to how you might have a year or two ago. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think we've certainly, like, uh, learned that when the batted uh, dips theory came out in 2000, 2001, Morris McCracken kind of was like, pitchers have no control over batted balls. Uh, that has been significantly walked back over the last 15 years to now where it's like, okay, well, knuckleballers have control over, you know, the quality of their, uh, you know, the co- contact against them. Left-handed pitchers uh, seem to have some. Uh, fly ball pitchers seem to have some. Guys like Marco Estrada who are like infield fly machines. Tall pitchers like Chris Young seem to have some. So we found like a lot of exceptions to the rule, right? Like the rule still applies to 85 to 90% of pitchers in Major League Baseball. But there are, you know, 10% of pitchers that fall to one side or the other. Uh, and guys like Tom Glavin have had very long careers where it's pretty clear that they are not uh, conforming to the norm. And, and they're very good at stranding runners, or in Nolan Ryan's case, really terrible at stranding runners. And, and you can have pitchers have 20-year careers where they never regress to the league-wide mean. And this is certainly some kind of uh, skill that there can be variance in. And so I think... Uh, I'm still a, a, a firm believer in the fact that the, the idea of FIP and XFIP applies to most pitchers. And from in most cases, they're going to regress back to uh, their walk rate, strikeout rate, ground ball rate, uh, and, and generally give you about what you'd expect uh, over the long term. But I think at the same time, we have to realize like there are pitchers who have either a deficient skill or an excellent skill at, at allowing weak contact or um, uh, giving up a lot of line drives or giving up a significantly larger number of home runs than we might expect based on their fly ball rate. And so uh, we don't – I think it's it's uh, hopefully been in the sabermetric community and on Fangraphs that it's become much less of a hard and fast rule of, like, this guy's XFIP is 3 and his ERA is 6. Therefore, you should expect him to have an ERA of 3 going forward and say, okay – Let's moderate this a little bit. If you have a whole bunch of pitchers who have an ERA of three and an XFIP of six, or you know the other way around, maybe you'd expect them to come towards 3.75, but not all the way back to three, because you're believing somewhere in that population of pitchers there are a few guys who really do have some kind of lack of skill that's not going to let them get all the way back to their XFIP. So when you see a pitcher who has a, a large gap between his fielding independent and actual run prevention numbers, what's the what's the first number you look at after you know strikeout, walk, ground ball rates? To try, and, uh, to try and see if there's something there. So the, I mean, the two general indicators are BABIP and lob percentage, right? So that's like, uh, you know, hits on balls in play and runner stranding. But then the subset of that is generally infield fly rate. That's the, that's the big driver of difference in BABIP. There are others, but infield fly rate's the big one. So if you see a pitcher like Chris Young or Marco Estrada, one of these guys who's running really low BABIPs sustainably, uh, or consistently, you can say, oh look, he's getting a lot of infield flies. That's actually a skill. We can we can believe he's going to regress less towards the league average than we might if he you know wasn't getting any infield flies. Um, and with runner standing, I think that's the tricky one. Like with a guy like Johnny Cueto, it's really a skill. He's really good at stopping guys from stealing bases against him, um, and so therefore it's harder for guys who are on first base to score because he doesn't allow them to advance to second base. Controlling the running game is absolutely something the pitcher can do. Uh, some guys are really slow to the plate, like Chris Young. 
Uh, and so they're very easy to steal off of, so they're not going to strand as many runners as you might expect. So he, Chris uh, Yogis is, is an oddity in multiple in, ways. In both ways, yeah. He's like the one of the hardest guys in baseball to get on base against uh, if you make contact, but then once you're on base, he's like the easiest guy in baseball to advance against. Huh, that's interesting. And, and he's also 6'10", so just just a weird, weird player all the way around. Do you think there's a do you think there's a relationship between height and ability to hold runners on base? Maybe. I mean, it's an interesting question. I think uh, we don't have a large sample of six ten pitchers. Right. Uh, we don't we don't have like time to the plate for Randy Johnson. But now that we have Statcast and we have uh, you know basically time to the plate for every pitcher in baseball for the last couple of years, I wouldn't be surprised if so, that was something that we studied and said, hey, look, do shorter pitchers. Or, you know, can they stride faster because their leg isn't in the air as long? Uh, so therefore they have an advantage in holding on runners versus tall pitchers or do tall pitchers, uh, you know, they're just not able to, to develop a really good pickoff move because they can't spin their body towards first base that fast. I wouldn't be shocked if we found out there was some relationship in the future. Yeah. The uh, Giants have a, have a, a pitcher at AAA now, Yon Gregorio, who I think is 6'8". That's pretty tall. That is pretty tall. It's not unprecedented, but it's, it's pretty tall. How tall yeah. is John Lackey? I was I was surprised to see I how tall. I think he's six five. He's pretty tall. I I, tall. I think it's even taller. I think it's bigger. How would how would we find out? You think six six? Well, six you, six. That's not okay. Right. Well, if he's listed at six six, he's probably actually six five. What's the uh, what's the height at which there's no lie either way? Uh, probably like six two. There's no okay. real benefit. Like you know, no one's gonna be like, yeah, I'm actually six three. But if a guy's five nine, you say he's. Uh... Uh, if if a guy's five nine, he's six foot in the books. Five <laughs> nine five ten, you can just automatically add two inches. All those right? guys are six footers. That's funny. Yeah, that was there was some conversation with that when uh, Eric Longenhagen was writing about Julio Urias. Yeah, right. A lot of people were very unhappy with his listed uh, listed height, and uh, right. I think Eric was like, "Well, I stood next to the guy, and I'm five ten, so." Yeah, yeah. I assume it's, it it seems to be one of the least. It's either an inexact science or it's an exact science, but the actual data is obscured yeah. because there's a lot of incentive to obscure it. I I think that's the thing is we just have bad data. Yeah. All right, you're done. You've fulfilled your obligation, Dave Cameron. All right, I can leave the shade. Yeah, that's all right. That's uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Oh, yeah, I should say thank you first. You're welcome. Okay. Second. Yeah, that's managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.